here. It's good to have you here this morning. Uh, my name is Luke, and I get to serve as the pastor here. It's good to have you here. Uh, first announcement I want to share with you guys is that Camp Sunday is coming up. Uh, we did this last year. We went out to Timberlake Camp, and uh, we had so much fun that at the end of the camp, everyone said we should do that again. And so we went ahead and reserved it right away for, uh, for this weekend, and so that's coming up. I'm going to pass around a sign-up sheet. I'll start over here, and, and it can kind of work this way. We'll have this available for a couple more um, Sundays, but the, the big thing that we need this for simply is lodging. Uh, there's a couple different lodging options out there. Uh, for those of you that have an RV, you can bring an RV. Uh, for those of you that like to sleep in a tent, or at least own a tent and are willing to sleep in a tent, uh, that option is available as well, too. And then there's a couple bunk rooms and that kind of thing. And, uh, and last year we just had the most fantastic brisket ever, and we just need to know how much of that to make. So uh, we'll pass around the, the sign-up sheet, and, uh, and if you could uh, let us know about that. But there will be more opportunities to sign up, and certainly you can call the office at any time. But we are pretty excited about that. Um, a couple other announcements. I would just actually just uh, have you kind of get the details from your bulletin. Uh, about the Greenhouse uh, VBS fundraiser, uh, some VBS registration. Um, I would encourage you to, to get the details out of that. Uh, really kind of the, the other announcement, though, that I did want to highlight is that many of you have known that Linda Regeer um, has been battling with cancer for a long time. And on a Friday, she passed away. Uh, this, this is Marvin Elda's daughter. And uh, so she passed away on Friday, and then there's going to be a funeral service in Stockholm. Uh, at the Stockholm Church there at 11 a.m. this Wednesday. So, um, yeah, we want to be, be praying for them and, and for that family and, and that really hard time. So let's have a word of prayer for this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for life and that you are the giver of life. Lord, we thank you that Linda is experiencing life more fully now than she ever has before. Pray for Marv and Elda and their family, their peace, their strong sense of your presence, their comfort. And Lord, we pray for this morning as we gather to learn and fellowship and worship and, and enjoy you. God, I pray that, that your truth would be spoken that our hearts would be worshipful, and that you'd continue to, to teach us what it means to be a disciple of you. We love you, Lord. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.
Well, at this point in the service, we always like to do a prayer together. So if you join me in a few moments of silence, we'll do some prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we, we come before you and uh, Lord, whatever it is that's on our hearts, whatever it is that's on our minds that, that could distract us this morning, God, we just lay that at your feet. We give it to you, Lord. desires to receive from you this morning, receive your wisdom, your truth, your instruction, your correction, your righteousness, Lord. Lord, if we have grieved your Holy Spirit in any way this past week, we ask that you would reveal that to us so we can make amends. you. You are so good. You are so gracious, faithful, very patient, and extravagantly generous. Lord, may our lives be spent glorifying you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. i 
Well, we are working on a, a series on discipleship. And what does it mean to be uh, a disciple of Jesus Christ? As we've talked about before, this, you know, the, the, the church and leadership has been uh, spending some time trying to figure out, all right, Lord, like, what's our, our unique vision or direction? And this word discipleship or disciple keeps popping up. And, and so we're, we're spending some time on this word. Um, I have no idea how long this sermon series will be. Um, we're just going to go until it's until it's kind of exhausted. It's been kind of interesting, actually. I, I was kind of hoping to just do another book of the Bible, but uh, every time I looked at one or went after it, I just had just this sense of no, just no peace about that, and no peace about that, and so uh, just kind of feeling like Lord's uh, leading us into this. Um, one of the things about this word disciple or discipleship that, that we've talked about is that really at, at the core of what we do as a church, as a community, uh, this is really to be our area of expertise. Now, w- there are times where we will work with other organizations or entities, right? We work with seminaries and colleges and missions organizations and, and relief uh, help and that kind of thing. But really, really no one else is going after disciple or, or what it means to be discipleship um so really this is this is kind of our thing and so if we're going to be experts in this then we really need to understand what is the most effective way um to do discipleship to engage discipleship and 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 you really have to have clarity on your current reality and on where it is that that you're going i mean given our current culture Uh, Given the times that we live in, given the resources that we have available to us, uh, the foreseeable future, what does discipleship look like here and now, and how do we engage in this? What worked last year may not work this year. What flopped last year may just be home run success this year. And so we're just kind of always striving to, to to, to help make sure this is better. You know, there's an expression out there uh, that says that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Horrible expression. I hate it. Um, Especially within the church context, because we are always trying to figure out how do we make this better? How do we take this up kind of to the next level? And if what we've been doing for 40 years is the best way to do it, then we stick to it. Um, But if there's a better way to do it, then, then we do that, right? Because we're always saying, how do we do this better? You know, I, I don't know where this comes in, but there have been some really just bad lies that have, have kind of crept into our thinking, though, around this idea of disciple and discipleship and, and what does it mean. And, and, and somewhere along the line, we have picked up these really silly notions that, that you know, it, that if you let God be in control of your life, like, I mean, just fully surrender to him. He's going to send you to an absolutely awful place and you're going to hate it. Right. Like, I mean, how many of you have heard these conversations where it's like, well, I don't know, because what if God makes me a missionary and sends me to Africa? I mean, that'd just be like the worst thing that could happen. Oh, you should be so lucky, people. Seriously. Um, We just, you know, or I don't, you know, God's going to make me a youth leader. And 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 wouldn't that just be awful? Um, One, we're treating God like some kind of magical charm that we don't want to jinx. And that's just a bad idea. And and not good to begin with but we, we are we are totally and completely misunderstanding the heart of god when when we engage in that kind of thinking folks the more i give my life to god the more awesome my life becomes really 
I mean, there are, there are hard points. It's not that, that my life is suddenly void of difficulties. I still have difficulties, but that's not because I said yes to Jesus. It's because I'm doing this thing called life, and it's just kind of standard issue, you know. So can we just man up and stop blaming it all on God? Like, the, yeah, the more I say yes to, to God, the, the more fantastic my life begins or, or becomes. Today, we, I just want to do kind of big picture overview on, on the process of disciple making that we see in the New Testament. And, um, you know, when I was first thinking about this, my first thought was, okay, how did Jesus make disciples? And that was really good. I really enjoyed that. But it was only in this, in really in these last couple of weeks that I've really begun to wonder, okay, not only how did Jesus make disciples, but actually how did the apostles make disciples? How, how did Paul make disciples? Um, and I've loved pondering that question. And there's two important differences that, that I, that I want to kind of name before we do just kind of very big picture overview on how they did it. One is in purpose, one is in terminology. Fundamental difference to realize is that when Jesus made disciples— when Jesus was kind of cultivating that, that group of people, he was directing people to build their life after himself. When Paul and the apostles were doing this, they were trying to help people build their life around someone else. Right? They were wanting to build their life, help people build their life around Jesus. It's an entirely different strategy when you say, I want your life to imitate my life versus I want your life to imitate someone else's life. So we have to go into this understanding that their purpose is different. Secondly, the other thing that we need to remember is that their terminology is different. It was fascinating to learn that the word disciple actually only appears in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or the, you know, kind of the Christ event and the book of Acts. After that, in the writings of the New Testament, we never see the word disciple. They use other words. They use words like in Christ, the saints, the called, pilgrim, or exiles. That's actually a really great word. Servants. Probably other terms, right? But just kind of to get you started. So as you guys read through Scripture, recognize that the concept is the same, but the terminology is shifting a little bit depending on who's writing and who they're writing to. Okay? So a couple fundamental differences. First of all, how did Jesus do it? Um, Greg Ogden, in his book, Transforming Discipleship, did an interesting thing. Uh, he, he took one of the leadership styles called situational leadership. He overlaid it with Jesus, um, and, it, and it fit really, really well. But basically how this model works is that early on you say, watch me. And then after a while you say, all right, watch me, but now let's talk about it. And then a little while later you say, okay, you do it, but then I'm going to give you some pointers along the way. And then lastly, it's, well, you're on your own, and good luck, and I'll be cheering from the stands, right? Book of Mark. First five chapters really never mention the disciples. The whole first part of Jesus' ministry, as outlined in the book of Mark, like they don't, every so often you see the word they, so we know they're kind of hanging around. But for the whole first part of Jesus' ministry, the disciples really don't even get named. Jesus does his ministry. They watch. They observe. And, um, and, and most of you are familiar that the disciples were kind of an eclectic crew to begin with. 
right? I mean, Scripture calls them uneducated. They were definitely not the spiritual elite of the day. I don't, maybe that was coincidence. Maybe they had less stuff to unlearn. I'm not sure. We know that four of them were fishermen. We know that one of them was a tax collector. So just think like finance guy that everybody hates. And we know one of them was a zealot. So that tells us that he was really interested in pretty much like the violent overthrow of Rome and setting up the Jewish people in charge. Okay. So imagine four business, like small businessmen and then like wealthy banker guy who got wealthy by foreclosing on homes. And then the guy who always like wears the Confederate flag and carries a 45. Okay. So that's half of them. We don't even know about the other half, but we do know they argued a lot. A and I think we can probably understand why. Um, they didn't get along so well. So anyway, so, so the disciples. Um, where was I going with that? Yes. So um, so in the first five books, uh, uh, of, or the first five chapters of the book of Mark, um, Jesus is really just kind of outlining his pattern. He establishes authority in those first five chapters. He establishes um, authority over the demonic, over sickness and disease, over the Sabbath, over nature, and even over death. Pretty well covers it, doesn't it? All in the first five chapters. He demonstrates acts of compassion towards people literally from all walks of life. Uh, the rich, the poor, people of high social status, people of low social status, men, women, children, pretty much all across the board. He demonstrates his compassion for them. And the other thing you see is that he takes a lot of flack from, from kind of the, the religious leaders of the day. So after that, then Jesus starts to interact with the disciples. And we see that there's more and more conversations. He's doing ministry, but he's engaging in conversations with them. But you also see that Jesus does not make it easy for them. He, he continually, like he is very comfortable setting up like a conundrums or just kind of like these mental train wrecks all the time. And, and he just kind of lets them sort of wallow in this mental agony, right? Which, I mean, how often does God do that to us anyways? You know, it's like, is it A or is it B? Because it can't be both, but, but wait, it is both? But wait, no, it's neither, but I don't understand how this is fitting together, right? Uh, I thought I understood it, and then I tried to study it, and now I don't understand it. So um, Jesus is really engaging them on, on kind of this mental level. Then you see him start to engage in letting them do ministry. One of the classic examples is the feeding of the 5,000. You guys probably remember this. They're out in the countryside. There's, I believe it's just 5,000 men, I think, plus women and children. And, and, like, there's no good grocery stores or restaurants nearby. How does the story start? Jesus says, you feed them. How does the story end? <sighs> I'll feed them. You pick up the leftovers. Like, I don't know if he sighed. I sort of inserted that. Maybe that was... A little bit too much kind of, I'm not sure, reading into it. But it starts off with, you do this, and it ends with, okay, it's okay, I'll, like, I'll do this properly for you. Um, the other one, of course, is when Jesus sends out the 12, basically on a short-term missions trip. Um, he sends them two by two ahead of him, go into every town and village ahead of you, preach the gospel, cast out demons, heal the sick, tell people I'm coming. Afterwards, he gathers them together. They little do a little debrief. They're really excited because demons submitted to their name. And he says, yeah, that was cool and all, but what you really need to stay focused on and what you really need to be grateful for is that your name is written in heaven. 
that's the thing that, that, that you stay grateful for. And then, of course, uh, so Jesus, you know, this process continues. And then, of course, eventually Jesus, um, you know, he leaves and, and sends his Holy Spirit. He gives them authority. He gives them power. But most importantly, he gives them the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit to lead, guide, counsel, empower, teach, that kind of thing. So that's a big picture kind of on Jesus. How did Jesus go through the process of making disciples? How did Paul go through the process? Now, Paul's different for a couple reasons. One, as, as we mentioned, ultimately he's trying to direct people towards Jesus. Um, but the other thing is just that in our records, we have more of Paul's writings to others as compared to a biography of Paul's life account. Which that in, it actually tells us one thing, that one of the ways that Paul made disciples was these letters, long-distance communication. I mean, it was very personal, but he's also kind of in engaging, um, engaging with them long-distance. The primary concept used by Paul is spiritual parenting. Also remember that Paul had more time. Jesus only had a three-year window. Paul has a lot lo I mean, none of us know when it's our time, right? But Paul has a much longer window. And so you, time and again... You see Paul using terminology around spiritual parenting. Uh, he uses images of fatherhood, motherhood, infants, children, nursing mothers, mother and labor, growing up into maturity, growing up into adulthood. And really isn't godly parenting really just a really great discipleship program? I mean, really, we could probably just find some really great books on Christian parenting and we say, all right, that's our discipleship strategy as a church. You know, we'll change some of the terms, some of the nouns around a little bit. But really, that's, that's what we're after. And within that, maturity is the desired goal uh, for you and I to mature uh, in faith. You know, the root word that's, that's used on this maturity is actually the, is kind of the root word for morph. And, 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 and the concept of morph is that you change from the inside out, Right? A chameleon will change its externals to blend with the surroundings, but the whole kind of caterpillar or butterfly, right, at the very core of its being, it changes, you know, and that works out. That is the kind of terminology that Paul uses when he talks about us maturing, when he talks about us growing, is changing from the inside out and changing everything about us. And only in faith are we to be childlike. Everything else, we are to grow up. This is important because sometimes we go with the childlike thing and we think it's funny or cool, but it's not. We are to grow up. Only in faith do we remain childlike. 1 Corinthians 13, 11, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. Uh, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Folks, it is never, I mean, I, I think you guys probably realize this, but it's never cool to be, like, ignorant about Jesus or your faith or Christianity, right? It, it, it's like joking about being ignorant about your spouse and people thinking it's funny. Yeah, Joanne, great gal, you know. Um, I, t I talk to her every day, right, at mealtimes. I say, dear Joanne, thank you for the meal. Amen. We have a good relationship. And other people tell me that she really likes me a lot. We're forever friends. I think we're good, right? If my relationship with Joanne is rub-a-dub-dub, -dub, thanks for the grub, that's a pathetic relationship, okay? 
Can we just say that? How much more so for the God of the universe who intentionally pursued us, died the most horrific death known to mankind so that we could spend eternity with him? There's nothing humorous in, in being ignorant about Christ or our relationship with Christ. So Paul, making disciples, spiritual parenting and always directing them to another person. A few other personal observations about discipleship, because um, we are going to do communion, and, and I want to allow a good bit of time for that. Uh, as you know, uh, prior to here, I, I, you know, I worked with Trek. Uh, our mission statement, you know, was disciples who make disciples. And just in the course of that, observed a few things about the, the disciple-making process that I want to share with you. First of all is that knowledge matters. Knowledge matters. It was easier for the, for the students who had a good grasp of Scripture coming into that than those where it was, where it was really new. They, they were just able to engage better. They were able to follow better. They, they were able to track along better. Okay? Knowledge matters. That said, knowledge by itself is really, really limiting. Uh, we would have students where their major was missions. And they would say, why do I need your two months of training when I've been getting you know, trained at the college level in this for several years now, you know, and then we'd prove them wrong and they'd be really thankful. So, um, and that kind of ties into the second thing. A large part of good discipleship, I think, is that experiences are critical. To experience parts of God. To experience team life. To experience reconciliation. You know, we do a couple days of teaching on hearing God's voice, and then we'd send them out for 48 hours of silence to experience God's voice. We do a little bit of teaching on team, and then we had a 12-hour event designed to just crush them as a team so that they knew where they were weak and so that they could build on that. And that's even coming into this. I have wrestled for a long time as a pastor, as a church, how do I incorporate experiences into this because I, I believe that that's just part of good discipleship and I haven't nailed down any good answers yet right I mean our worship team when we get together and we talk and we plan our hope and our prayers that you experience God right that this is something you experience more than just an event but there's only so much you can do one hour once a week you know there's there's just kind of some inherent limitations in that and um, so anyway, I haven't nailed it down, but that's just how do we incorporate experiences? Third point, mentoring. Mentoring is very important. Um, and I would say as a church, we we're kind of non-existent on this one. But to always be mentoring someone else and to always be mentored by someone else. Uh, to always be the student and to always be giving away what you have received. Now, sometimes you got to get a little bit tricky and you don't actually use the word mentor because if you come up to someone and say, will you mentor me? They get intimidated and they're like, no. But if you come up to someone and say, can I buy you a cup of coffee? I have three questions I want to ask you. And you kind of trick them into it. Most people will do that. And then if you handle it well, you can be like, can we do this again? 
All right, mentoring, not dating, okay? Keep it focused here, okay? I want to go back to that second cup of coffee. And for other people, too, to mentor others, right? It's, it just kind of comes across weird to approach someone and say, like, mm, I need to mentor you. But you can say, can I buy you a cup of coffee? And, uh, and then just ask some questions about life. If you do say something where, you know, where we are going to enter into, like, a mentoring relationship, you clarify the topic, you have, you, have cri- you have clarity on the topic, and you set an end date. You say, we are going to talk about purity for the summer. And then if we want to meet after that on a different topic or something like that, that's fine. But we're going to talk about this thing for this amount of money. And when it comes to mentoring, you find areas and specialties, right? You find someone who can mentor you in business and parenting and marriage and whatever, all kinds of stuff. I mean, ever since I've been here, I've tried to always have a couple mentors, you know, in, in play. Mentoring. Uh, next point. Ownership on the student's part when it, when it comes to good discipleship, just things I, I've observed. I could put the best speaker up here, and if you were, like, grumpy or had a bad day or a bad attitude, you would get nothing out of it. And yet on the flip side, I could put an elementary kid up here, and they could do the most basic of devotions for you. And if you had decided in your mind that you were going to engage in this, and if you just decided you were going to learn something, you would find something to learn. So there there has to be an engagement and and kind of that ownership um, on the student's part, where we choose to learn. When you choose to learn, you really you can learn most anything most anywhere. Um, Remember that that multiplication is huge. This is not just about you. It is your responsibility to give this away. When you're interacting with others, you will never be able to fill their cup, metaphorically speaking, but you can empty yours. Just take everything you know, give it to them, and they're going to need to go somewhere else to find the rest. Okay? Remember, it's about multiplication. Secondly, is it, or again, not secondly, we're on a five or six, you need the body of Christ. You need other people. And you need other people that are not like you, who have different strengths. Who have, who have different abilities, uh, who have different passions and perspectives. Trek team I was on, had we met in high school, there is no way we would have been friends. Like, just not happening. So whatever. And we argued. We were good at arguing. Ugh. But everyone was committed to working through that, and at the end, we were a very good team. And at the end, other teams were curious about why we had such good team unity. Like, it, it, it confused them, honestly. A well-rounded team is made up of people who aren't. A well-rounded team is made up of people who unapologetically bring their strengths, their specialties, to the table and then humbly work with others to reach the common shared vision. A well-rounded team is made up of people who aren't. They're all bringing their, their, their strong skill sets. I have never seen a good team where everyone was similar. All the good teams, you you got people who are just who are different. Last thing, and then we're gonna have some communion, and that is that to to stay Christ-centered. I mean, this whole thing is about Jesus, isn't it? This last week, of, uh, an old friend of mine, uh, you know, chatting via Facebook, she was reflecting on the I think she called them spiritual giants in her life and and getting to hear their story and what's been going on. 
And she said, really, there's nothing special about these people. They're just so, so in love with Jesus. That's she cannot identify like there's no unusual skill set. There's no unusual ability. There's no unusual history or upbringing. They're just people who really, really, really like Jesus. And yet today they have earned this title of spiritual giant in her life. Look, I mean, at Henderson MB, we love scripture, right? But we don't love scripture just because we love scripture. We love scripture because it points us to the person of Jesus Christ who is alive and well. And it is that relationship with the living purpose that is at the core of this whole thing. And it is that living person, really, in discipleship that, that we wish to emulate. Because at the core of this, it's all about Jesus. I remember one guy saying, he goes, if I could rename our church, we'd just call it Jesus. Amen? Amen. We're going to have some communion. If my helpers would come forward, um, here's how we're going to do this. We'll have a, a couple places up here where you guys can... Uh, can come forward. We'll have some lovely music going on in the background. Erland is going to be roving for those of you who are unable to get up. Just flag him down, and he'll uh, he'll come to where you're at. Um, we'll have, you know, um, also how we go here is just that anyone who confesses to be a believer of Jesus Christ is is welcome to join us in communion, and. Um, uh, We'll give you a space to just spend a little bit of time just with the Lord, right? This is a good time to say, God, are things good between us? Is there anything I need to confess? Or maybe you just need to spend a little bit of time telling God all the great things about himself. Um, when you're ready, when you feel ready, come forward. We will we'll serve you the, the bread and the juice. You're welcome to either uh, partake up front or you're welcome to take it back to your seat. Uh, the only thing I would say is, you know, like we got some time, like not everyone needs to mob the front all at once, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, wait till there's an opening. We don't all, all need to fill up the aisles to, to do this. And um, yeah, I, I think that's about it. So um, let me do a word of prayer and and then we'll start and then you guys can just spend some time quietly and then when you're ready, you guys can come forward. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this time where we remember, for this symbolic remembrance. Lord, we remember that on the night that you were betrayed, your body was broken in some of the most horrific ways that, that history has known. And Lord, that that was, that was for our sin. Lord, we remember that, that your blood was shed on the cross. And that by your perfect life, by your perfect sacrifice, we are given the opportunity to be cleansed of our sins, to spend eternity with you, to join in fellowship with others. God, there is no other gift that can match what happened there. Lord, as we spend a few moments in reflection and prayer, I ask that you would speak to each one of us. By your spirit, Lord, it's our desire to be in right relationship with you, to lead lives that honor and glorify you.